All right. So that was pretty exciting. It's not every day you get to see other countries uh, and their own Christmas traditions and the ways they're similar and different from ours. Well, this morning, what I have to say to you is not quite as exciting, but here we go. Our uh, preaching text today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of all the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. This is a word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Advent, if you haven't already guessed it, and if you're new here, is a season in the Christian church when we prepare for Christmas. And this year it has come in roaring like a lion, and not just because of the impending storm on its way. Normally, on most years, we have a Sunday between Thanksgiving and Advent. Some of you are shaking your heads like, God help us all, it's already begun. But today, on the first Sunday of December, as many of us are still trying to come out of our turkey comas, Advent is beginning. And with only three Sundays and 24 days left to get all of our present shopping and paper writing and travel planning and decorating done, we are being reminded, perhaps not so subtly, that Christmas waits for no one. But ironically enough, that's exactly what we're supposed to be doing at this time of year, right? Waiting. Advent has been traditionally called, it's been called the season of waiting because for millennia, people have been celebrating the waiting for a Messiah who would come and bring the world hope in the midst of despair. It's a time when we are supposed to slow down a little bit to become introspective, a little contemplative, to be a little more thoughtful in our day and to think about who it is we are waiting for and maybe where we need the most saving this year. But we aren't that good at waiting, are we? If you don't believe me, on Thanksgiving, how many of you snuck around like a vulture around the turkey, picking off the scraps while somebody else tried to carve it because you just couldn't wait another second to put it in your mouth? Raise your hand. Come on, it wasn't just me. Ah, uh, yeah. So how many of you shopped online on Thursday? Because we no longer have to wait until Black Friday or in long lines to get all the deals. Raise your hand. All right, a few more. Some of your noses are getting a little bit long. What about this? How many of you found yourself waiting in holiday traffic in the rush of the holiday season to get somewhere this weekend, and you couldn't help but spread a little Christmas cheer to that neighbor who took your parking spot or cut you off in traffic? Raise your hand. Oh, we got a few more. Okay. 
Waiting can be difficult, can't it? Because we're not always the most patient people. But waiting is also a little difficult because right now we're living in a world where so much feels so urgent right now. Most days, getting the Christmas shopping done, it's about the last thing that we're concerned about. How about the rush to get our kids to all the extracurriculars so that they can get into a good school and have a good life amid all the pressures that they face? That feels urgent. Or to make those last-minute deadlines at work or the due dates at school before everyone goes off the grid until after the new year, that also is pressing. What about getting our sick loved one the help they need before it's too late? Or getting the lead pipes in Newark changed out so that they stop poisoning our communities and our kids just 20 minutes up the road? or finding homes for the millions of displaced people around the world who regularly have to flee their homes because violence has become so commonplace that leaving is the only way you survive. It's hard to stop, to wait amid these things, to feel good about slowing down or taking time out to breathe in the holiday season when these urgent matters are filling our schedules and our screens, either because slowing down might mean that we aren't doing enough or slowing down might create too much room in our lives to worry about more things that we hardly feel like we can control. But in Advent, we aren't asked to wait on everything to drop the things that really matter or to stop and pretend like everything in our lives or in the world all around us is just fine. Idle waiting isn't the goal of Advent. Advent is a time when we are invited to give ourselves an extra minute or two longer than maybe we normally would to stop and ask ourselves, what are the things in life that matter the most? Are there things that maybe I've been waiting on that God wouldn't want me to be waiting on? Have I been spending my time on the right things? As we practice waiting in this season over the next few weeks together, we are going to be considering what can't wait. Today our scripture passage and the candle that we lit is all about hope. And the prophet in these four verses is writing about how one day in the future, all of the nations would gather together to worship God and there would not be war any longer. They would agree to take all of their weapons and to make them into farm tools instead. To root their lives in newness and in new life instead of death upon more death. They would do things like build alternative economies where from the least to the greatest all were cared for. And the whole world would become transformed from this battlefield into these beautiful fertile gardens. It's a beautiful vision. But when we only read these four verses, what we miss is the placement of them, and that is actually what I find the most interesting about this text. The chapters that come before and after these four verses actually are a very different tone from the ones that we read for this morning. They are all about the disobedience of the Israelite people. 
The destruction that they're about to experience may be because of some bad life choices, but mostly because all of the nations and the empires around them were warring for wealth and power and control. And their towns are about to be invaded and ransacked and torched to the ground. Most of the people who are hearing these words will be driven out or put to death and everything around them is about to crumble and burn. It's kind of an odd time to be casting a vision of hope, isn't it? Why would this author, this prophet, dare to speak words like this on the cusp of something so horrific? Is it some weird form of escapism or shallow optimism or this utopic idea of some fictional future that distracts from their very real present? I guess that wouldn't be so odd, would it? We've all heard people speak shallow words of hope when they don't know what else to say or they don't know how bad the pain is, when they'd rather forego responsibility in helping to find a solution to a problem, maybe because it's not their problem, or just because it's human nature to want reassurance and peace in the midst of chaos. Is that what the prophet is doing here? What purpose could this attitude of hope be offering in the midst of all this pain? You know, I thought about this question a lot while we were away last week, not only because all of us know that we are living in a world right now where it seems like we need a lot of hope and where there's a lot that is going wrong and there's a lot of suffering. But I was also thinking about it because I watched this great new show on Apple TV recently called The Morning Show. Have any of you heard of it? Raise your hand if you've heard of it. No one? Come on, okay. So we got two people here that have heard of it this morning. So this new show, it has Jennifer Aniston and it has Reese Witherspoon in it. See, that's what I'm saying. It's a great cast. And both of them are these television news anchors, but their personalities and their life trajectories couldn't be more different. Reese is this small town, local news anchor who's kind of fiery and cutthroat. She's this no-nonsense reporter who's like uncompromising in her quest to track down and report on the truth of a story, even though she's a little blind to the fact that truth may not always be so black and white. She goes out and she covers protests, she gets in the middle of things, she starts a brawl in one of them as she tries to stand up for her ethics. She's sort of admirable, actually, in a little bit of a self-righteous kind of way. But Jennifer Aniston, on the other hand, she has spent 15 years as this major news anchor for The Morning Show, which is on daytime television. It's similar to Good Morning America. And the people who all work for this network, they have gotten used to sort of compromising their reporter instincts a little bit, their own ethics on, the, on occasion. They don't always tell the hard facts. Sometimes they add in fluff pieces in order to help the network remain kind of apolitical and for the sake of making the news a little more palatable to the morning masses. And they don't always feel great about it. Jen Aniston's character doesn't always feel great, but they do get a lot of stories that are important to cover, and they reach a lot of people. Well, through a series of plot twists in this show, Jen and Reese, they end up working as co-hosts on the morning show together. And in the last episode of the season, the major differences in their ethics and in their professional life come to this head in a great scene. They are on site in California, and they're covering the wildfires. 
And as the wildfires are raging in the mountains all around them in the background, the news coverage folks, they're sitting at this table and they're trying to figure out from what angle are we going to try and tell the story. Well, Reese has this idea, as she would, to do a segment on the inequity of how some people with more money were getting firsthand access to firefighters while others with less money were having all of their belongings go up in smoke because they didn't have the money to, to manage it. But she gets resistance from her manager. He suggests that maybe they need to stick to a softer side of the story, report on a guy who's been saving stray dogs in the fire because everybody loves to hear about that. And as usual, she lights into this manager. And she says, you know what? It is a reporter's job to tell the unfiltered truth. Even when people don't think they want the hard truth, they want the hard truth. It's our duty to bring them the facts. It's the only way you affect real change. It's the only way you give people hope. She is animated. At which point, Jen Aniston, who's been irritated by her from the beginning, she finally snaps. And she cuts it in this girl's kind of arrogant purity a little bit. And she says, are you kidding me? People need hope. They need a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Something to believe in. People know the ugly truth. The world sucks. They need to know that maybe everything isn't spinning out in moral chaos. That's what we need to be doing here. People need something to hang on to. This show is about giving people a lifeline. Now what's so amazing about this scene, other than the fact that every single person in this room can resonate with one of the characters over the other, and none of us can agree on exactly which one we should be siding with, it's that neither one of them are wrong. It's actually a really powerful scene, because every prophet and news anchor and anyone seeking to inspire change anywhere knows that change requires the very delicate balance of truth-telling and hope-telling. Helping others to see the brokenness and the beauty in the world. To see the world for what it is, and also to grasp a vision for what it could be. See, prophets in the Old Testament, they had two jobs. The first job was to warn us. To warn us, when we structure our political and our economic and our social lives with each other in ways that are contrary to the values of God, in ways that are unequal, in ways that rob each other of life, their job is to warn us that when we structure our lives in those ways, it'll never sustain us. But they also had vision, a way of looking at and living in the world that inspired. They believe that despite all the despair, there is a divine love that creates and holds and sustains this world. A love that continues to choose us even when we are not so faithful. A love that actually creates the potential in the world for people to choose things like farm tools over weapons, economies of generosity over economies of greed, Relationships built on grace and not on the backs of others. See, the prophets believed that they served a God who was always creating new future opportunities for us to become who we were always meant to become. And so, 
Perhaps they wrote these four verses of hope and they stuck them smack dab into the middle of a world burning all around them because they dared to imagine a future wherein we might accept God's invitation. They dared to hope not because it erased the present or made it more palatable, but because imagining alternatives to all the death dealing going on and putting their energies toward helping others believe it and work toward it actually made space for hope to come alive, to become contagious, to inspire people to change. You know, just as the Israelite communities we need a world, we in a world that needs a lot of hope, where hope just can't wait. People need it in their relationships, in their life circumstances, for a future that is better and brighter than the one we seem to be barreling toward right now. And we are people here in this community who have been given a vision of hope, a vision that says, you know what? That potential is possible. It may not be easy, it may require some work, some change on our part, but there is a love that chooses this world and makes new life possible if only we choose it. When we live into our call to be people of hope, when we model new ways of being in the world together, we have no idea what that might inspire others to do or how they might take up hope and share it. But crazier things have happened. Victoria Safford, a writer who contributed to a book that I'm reading right now called The Impossible Will Take a Little While, she wrote, once you have glimpsed the world as it might be, as it ought to be, as it's going to be, however that vision appears to you, it is impossible to live compliant and complacent anymore in the world as it is. And so you come out. And you walk, and you march, and you work the way a flower comes out and blooms because it has no other calling, it has no other work. Whatever our vocation, we stand beckoning and calling, singing and shouting, planting and pointing at the gates of hope, bearing witness to the possibility that one can live in this world with dignity and bravery and gladness that befits a human being. And maybe that's what it means to live out our mission. You know, at Madison UMC, in our common life together, I am seeing glimpses of hope take root all the time. Alzheimer's groups getting started so that people don't have to walk hard journeys alone. People inviting strangers into their home for a Thanksgiving meal and becoming like me. Whole child care organizations being adopted into our care so that families and children know that they're loved and cherished. Welcoming statements being crafted to ensure that every person knows that at least there is one community of faith out there that is fighting for them. A longtime member extending hands and welcome to someone who is new and who's maybe a little uncomfortable in this new community. Adults volunteering to share stories about what they love most about Christmas and other places with our children and investing in their lives. A group of people who take time out of their busy Monday before a Thanksgiving holiday to package food for people who hardly have any. Friends, that's what it means to hope. When we choose, 
When we take time out each day to remind ourselves that our calling is to help people experience the love of Jesus, we inspire hope for a hurting world. And for the people who need it most right now, hope just can't wait. And so maybe neither should we. Pray together. Gracious God, as we begin this, thank you for reminding us that we are called to be people who hope. That we are called to be people who wait, but who don't idly wait. That we are called to be people who hope, but it is not some optimistic idealism. We are called to be people who claim the vision that you have spoken over our lives and over this world that we were created for something better. People who put our time and our energy and our efforts into helping bring it about. So God, give us the courage and the strength and the bravery to be people who embody your hope this day so that others who are searching for it might find it in us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus the Christ and God's people said together,